0: you know, whether it was in the dojo or just life, I was like, this is no big deal. I was like, I stood in a ring in front of this guy who's like an annihilator of people on TV in front of thousands of people. It was on like Eurosport, you know, that's like the ESPN in Europe or whatever. I was like, relative to what I experienced, like whatever. Like it made me more just like when I would like confront things, I was like, well, I've I've dealt with worse, so this isn't so bad.
1: Welcome to the 7 Levels of Performance Podcast, the show that goes behind the scenes of some of the world's best athletes and performers to give you the exclusive take on what they do to be at their best and how you can implement those things in your life to be at your best today. Dr. Pete Goldman, it's good to have you on the show, man. How you doing?
0: Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We met once in person, and when
1: you asked me to be on the show, I was like, let's do it. Cool, man. Well, um, so for folks who don't know you, you are a rather well-known chiropractor in the Bay Area and also a martial artist. Yes. Um, I'm a chiropractor, I
0: say in name only, meaning I'm a chiropractor, meaning I, I went to chiropractic school and I have after my name, DC, which stands for doctor of chiropractic. So you could say I'm Dr. Peter Goldman, comma DC. I'm a chiropractor, but um, what 99.9% of chiropractors do in this world right now has nearly nothing to do with what I do. So um, I'm sure we'll get into that, but you know, I'm a chiropractor officially. Yes. And martial artists, and we could talk about this in depth. I've been doing martial arts since I'm about 10 I think um and and if those of you are familiar with Kyokushin karate which if you or your listeners are not I'm happy to give a thorough explanation of um it's quite interesting I'm a black belt in Kyokushin and also Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I've played around with other martial arts too so that's a little martial arts summary before we get into the the meat of it
1: yeah that's awesome so um, there's probably two things we can talk about then. It's, one is your journey as a martial artist, and the other is just the work you do um, as a chiropractor and beyond what most people think that is, just you know, back adjustments. And I know you've worked with a lot of athletes, so we can talk about the importance of that work in supporting athletics as well. My pleasure. You want, you want to kick it off with martial arts or healing or other? Let's do martial arts. So um, you know, what was it you've been doing it for quite a long time. What was it that got you into it? So I
0: <clears throat> I'm fifty-two now. I was born in nineteen sixty-seven. So I was born I'm and I'm mentioning that, not because I look thirty-eight, just kidding. I'm, <laughs> I'm mentioning that because um I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, and anyone who knows about Brooklyn in the seventies was treacherously dangerous. Um, so i grew up in a very rough neighborhood um in fact it's kind of funny cuz my dad was actually quite successful so hmm. we had you know we lived on one of the nicer blocks but one block away was like one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in america so hmm. um anyway so i grew up in that kind of atmosphere um and uh, I used to tell my parents, can we move out of here? Can we move? I get mugged every day. I used to tell them that when I was a kid. Can we move, please? Um, and then they tried to. They, I remember when I was a kid, like every weekend we would go looking for places to live in the suburbs of New York. Because my dad, my dad had a successful business in Manhattan. So he didn't want to like leave New York. But he, we were like, oh, maybe we'll move to New Jersey or Long Island or Rockland County or, you know, somewhere where my dad could just like commute for an hour and into Manhattan. And I remember it was like a two year period. They were trying to move because I was like getting mugged like every freaking day. And um, eventually, like, I guess they just lost the idea of it or I guess the neighborhood got a little better. And of course, now Brooklyn is like one of the, one of the nicest neighborhoods in America. That was a long time ago. So. I took up martial arts just to learn how to defend myself. That was the only reason I took it up. I already was very athletic. I was playing sports. It wasn't like I needed a physical outlet. Uh, It wasn't like I was looking for any kind of like spiritual, well, I was only 10 years old. I don't don't think I knew what that word meant, but I wasn't looking for any like spiritual awakening through martial arts. I literally just wanted to learn how to fight. That's all I wanted to learn how to do. Um, And uh, that's how I started.
1: Uh, and did you find it helpful for defending yourself and um, kind of what was the impact of, of training with martial arts at the time? I
0: think when I started, I think I was maybe 10 or 11 and I joined, I mean, I didn't know anything about martial arts. I think it just had like martial arts school. I just like asked my mom, can I sign up here? You know, and I started going, like I was really nice. I remember his name too. I remember, I remember the guy. He was really, he was a nice guy. Um, he, but it was like very like Brooklyn seventies ish, you know, it was like, it was like, if an adult tries to abduct you, like pick you up and take you somewhere, like bite their ear off. Like he was teaching us something like that. It was like, it was like a typical class, you know? Um, you know, we learned really to punch and kick. And I think, I think, I think it was a Korean. I mean, I, like I said, I, I was too young to understand it then. And I didn't really stick with it that long. I think it was like a Korean martial art. I not Taekwondo, mm-hmm. some obscure Korean martial art that was more about street fighting. Mm-hmm. Um the teacher was a very nice african american gentleman who probably was about 60 then mm-hmm. and i think he lived in korea maybe he was like the korean war i don't know he he was like in korea at some point in world war i don't know i guess well probably the korean war or or maybe after the korean war he was ocup- occupying korea yeah. not work. but anyway the point is <laughs> however he learned it he was teaching us and i stuck with him for i think about a couple years and to answer your question no, nah, I don't really think I knew how to fight. I don't, I don't think I learned anything practical except, you know, biting someone's ear. I don't think I was about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, predating Mike, uh, and Mike Tyson back, uh, in his days, Exactly. Uh, <laughs> who's, from Brooklyn. who's from Brooklyn and who's a year older than me. So we were in Brooklyn at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the style, right? Um, you know, you just do what you can. So, okay. So what did you do after that Korean martial art? Where did you go next? So the next thing, um, like I said, I was I was very athletic. So I was doing a lot of sports
0: at a pretty high level, and that was like you know uh, what my focus was more you know just sports, various sports. Um, and then um, when I was sixteen, the neighborhood. Well, by then we weren't going to move out anymore, but you know it was still dangerous. And I was pretty small actually. I I wasn't short, but I was pretty thin. Like I mean now now I'm about six two two ten, but at the time, I, when I was in high school, I was like, I would think I was six one or something like that, but I was like 155 pounds when I was a senior. I was like a pretty thin kid, and the sport that I was very good at was tennis, so I, was, I ended up playing four years of collegiate tennis, you know, vars- varsity in college, so when you're a tennis player, you know, you're not really compelled to lift weights or anything. You, you kind of have that kind of body that's more more thin, you know, Yeah, you, you don't want to be too stiff, you know, so... So I was pretty thin kid and, you know, just like even the neighborhood my school was in was really bad. And, you know, I just wanted to learn how to defend myself again. So this is, I think it was January of 85. I was a senior in high school, like, you know, halfway through my senior year of high school. And um, that was before the internet. So I, I got the yellow pages, you know, I saw those big yellow pages. I was looking up like martial arts or I think it was all called karate then. I don't know. And I just coincidentally and very luckily found this karate school. I liked their ad in the Yellow Pages, and I was 16, and I went. I didn't know anything. But little did I know that luckily I was walking into the United States Kyokushin Karate Headquarters in Manhattan. Oh, wow. Being taught by Soshu, back then they called him Saikoshian, um, Shigeru Oyama, who I think is one of the greatest martial artists of the last 500 years. Um, Mm. if anyone does any research and, uh, Mm. I started training there and, um, had a very positive experience. I didn't really know what was going on, but eventually, (laughs) eventually I did. And, uh, you know, over different, different experiences and different things, I I did learn how to fight. And, uh, I actually ended up being a fighter for his team and I fought all over the world for him and I was fighting Mm. some of the best fighters
1: in the world. Was that then something you did uh, kind of pro- professionally? Were you getting paid for these competitions or was it just kind of fun? In Kyokushin, there's no, they give you like prizes. At least when I did it, they give
0: you. I remember one time I won this. I remember I, I actually came in third place, but it was a really big tournament. Like, it would be like in, in the equivalent in um, Jiu Jitsu to like the Mundials or like yep. Polaris or Metamoris. Like, it's really the elitist level of like that kind of fighting. I was fighting in those things. I remember I took third place once. And it was, it was sponsored by Kikomen, like the soy sauce company. And they gave me like these, this huge case of soy sauce. They gave me like, you know, 20 gallons of soy sauce. So that's, Life supply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, whatever. I think it's, it's got a bunch of preservatives in it. So if you want to buy soy sauce, so nothing against Kikomen, but I think uh, probably a healthier option out there. Anyway, in 1993, when the first K-1 came, the very first K-1, the number one K-1 mm-hmm. in 92, the guy who invented K-1, Master Ichi, his idol, because he was a Kyokushin derivative guy too, his idol was my teacher. So he called my hmm. teacher and said, hey, if you want to send any fighters for this thing I'm doing called K-1. And my teacher actually asked me if I wanted to fight in the first K-1, but I didn't do it for various reasons. Uh, yeah. I'm glad I didn't. I'm sure Peter Arts would have knocked me out in one second. So anyway, um, or Ernesto Hust or whoever was on the first K-1. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I didn't. I didn't go in to be a fighter. Actually, the way I became a fighter is kind of a funny story, which I really never told. Not that it's some kind of personal story. I just, for some reason it never comes up, but I'll tell you. Yeah. So what happened was I, I, I liked to train and when they'd have tournaments, they had different levels of tournaments. So sometimes they'd have like world-class tournaments, like, you know, like the metamorphoses or whatever. And sometimes yeah. they have like the, Sometimes I had like, it was a tournament, but it was not like an international tournament, more like a regional tournament. So it was like different levels of tournaments. So anyway, so my teacher used to tell everyone, you have to come to the tournaments. And at the time, I was like, I'm just here for self-defense. I don't care about the tournaments. I don't want to fight in tournaments. I don't want to watch tournaments. I could care less about the culture of this place. I'm just here to learn how to fight. And that's it. So the whole notion of having to go watch these other fighters was like so displeasing to me so um i just would never go and then one year i think it was already a brown belt or a green belt or something he said like uh everyone who's not fighting the tournament has to come watch or i'm going to demote everyone a belt level <laughs> so <laughs> i was like I would, no, no, actually I was like, man, how can I how can I not go to this tournament? Like I just like I still didn't want to go, but I, I kind of had to. And I looked at my calendar and coincidentally, that tournament was like on a Sunday and it fell on like a Jewish holiday and I'm Jewish. Not that I not oh, that God. I am, not that I am or was really religious, but I am Jewish. So I was like, it's a Jewish holiday. So I wrote my teacher this very polite letter that I cannot attend the tournament to even watch. Because it falls on I think it was Yom Kippur, which is actually the holiest holiday for Jews. Mm-hmm. So was like yeah. I was like, this is on Yom Kippur so I cannot attend, sorry. And I didn't. And I was I didn't get demoted a belt. Okay, so anyway, so the next year comes there's another kind of a regional tournament, like not like not a big one. It would be like uh you know, like Jiu Jitsu by the Bay, you know, like Sergio's tournament. You know, it's not yeah,
1: it's yeah, not, a local tournament.
0: Right, yeah. like a local tournament. You know, it's, it was like Jiu Jitsu by the bay, but for Kyokushin. And same thing, my teacher's like, everyone has to show up. And I was like, damn, you know, it's not a Jewish holiday this year. So. <laughs> so I go to watch, and I was a brown belt at the time. I go to watch, and I think the only people that were fighting were black belts. It was, it was just like a black belt division, you know. Huh. Like, it wasn't for brown belts or whatever. But I was, I was pretty good then. I was like really tra- – I was pretty freaking good. I was training a lot. So I go in the audience, and I see this guy I know who's a black belt in my school. And he's like, Hey Pete, what are you doing here? I'm going, I'm just here to watch. He goes, no, you're fighting. I'm like fighting. I I, I, I didn't weigh in. I didn't bring my gi. I'm a, I'm a Brown belt. He's like, here, take my belt. So he gave me his black belt and he like registered me and like made me fight. And uh, it was funny because Kyokushin only has three weight classes
1: Hmm.
0: or it did then it has lightweight, middleweight and heavyweight. That's it. So middleweight is 155 pounds to 175 pounds. Heavyweight is 176 and above. So if you weigh 176 pounds, you could fight someone who's
1: 250.
0: Yeah. <laughs> lightweight is 154 and below. So you could be 154 pounds and fight someone who's 110 pounds. But anyway, most guys, if they're anywhere near middleweight, they'll lose the weight. So if you're walking around at 185, you'll make sure that you're 175 so you can fight middleweight and not be 185 and fight a guy who's two two forty-five of solid muscle. Exactly. And anyway, but anyway, that day, that day. I think I weighed like 177. I didn't know I was going to fight. So I weigh in as a heavyweight. And my first fight is against this guy. He's like 230, solid muscle. And I did really, really good. I did really good against this guy. So here I am. I'm not, I'm not training to fight. I'm not a fighter. I'm not going to fight. And they just like hand me like a belt and tell me to fight. And on top of that, I weigh in as a heavyweight and I fight heavyweight. Again, it's like a regional tournament. It's not like the world class fighters, but it's tough black belts, you know, tough guys.
1: Yeah, seriously, yeah.
0: So, so you know, in Kyokushin, you're trying to not. It's not a point system. You're trying to knock each other out. You're trying to, yeah. trying to put the person unconscious, you know. So, I did really good, and I just got like the bug. I was like, I think I could fight, like I, you know, to be a fighter, you know. But anyway, you have to be picked to be like on the elite team of fighters. You couldn't just be on that team but you could like enter certain regional tournaments that were kind of better than that one, but still not like the world-class ones. So anyway, so that was in, that was in, I think it was in like May of 1990. So then, no, no, no. Yeah. It was May of 1990. So then it was like August of 1990 and I was in, I was just in class. I was just, I was at the dojo just training in some class. And my teacher goes, we're having a big tournament, not like, again, not like Mundial's, but pretty big, like, uh, yeah, actually, no, like Mundial's, not like Metamoros. Like, it was a big tournament coming up in October in Connecticut, which is just, you know, yeah. an hour or so north of New York, where I, where I was. It was in Manhattan. And uh, he's like, anyone who wants to fight in that tournament, walk to the front of the class. Like, walk to the, there was a mirror, walk, you're gonna be in the front row, or whatever, for the training that day. And I was like, I had no interest. in, even though I kind of had the bug in that one, I, you know, this was a higher level. I wasn't. And that same guy that black belt, I guess he thought he was kind of like a mentor to me, which I wouldn't mind. He was really cool guy and and good. Yeah. Same guy who gave me the belt. He was in that class and he pushed me, put his hand on my back and pushed me to the front of the room. All of a sudden I'm just standing there like, Oh, I guess I'm fighting in October. And he's like, Oh, we're going to have special training. Like if you know, for that, not just regular class we're gonna have like you know two hours a day of special training six days a week or whatever and i just all of a sudden this fell into it and i just showed up and i fought in that one and then it evolved there was like kind of an elite team of fighters we had to be picked where they'd send you around the world to fight and that was like you know i'm not i'm not totally up on jiu tournaments but whatever the best yeah. one is you know if if metamorris is the best it was that it was like yeah you're fighting the best full contact karate fighters in the world and I was on that team and I fought in Europe and the U.S. for a few years and that's what happened.
1: Hmm. That's awesome. And then were you, um at what point in life was this for you, were you, had you finished um, education and- I actually, or... yeah, I
0: graduated college in 89 mm-hmm. and I went, I worked for four years in New York City and then I, went, I decided to become a chiropractor. And in late 93, I went back to chiropractic school. So from 89 to 93 was the years that I graduated college. You know, I played in the tennis team. I was an economics major, whatever. Didn't know I was going to be a chiropractor. Worked for four years in New York City while I was training like, like a professional, practically, for the Kyokushin. Then I decided to be a chiropractor, kind of retired from Kyokushin, went to chiropractic school in 93. So these years were... 89 to 93, and I was like, you know, I was like 22 or whatever I was, 20, you know, yeah.
1: Yeah, really, you're primed for fighting from a physical standpoint. Um, so do you still train Kyokushin?
0: I do. In fact, I'm going to today, actually, later today, um, there's a school in Japantown in San Francisco, it's actually called Enshin Karate, because Kyokushin splintered into like many, many groups, but you know, it's all mm-hmm. it's different names, all the same thing. Um, and I'm not going to I, I i mean i could but i don't think everyone wants to hear all the all the intricacies of how kyokushin split up but um ancient karate was established by a guy named joko joko Ninomiya, who is one of the greatest kyokushin fighters ever but he's also really really good at judo so he kind of splintered off and he formed his own style which is the striking of kyokushin with judo throws Okay. Oh, cool. no groundwork no groundwork so if you hit the yeah. floor I mean, in, in a street fight, you know, maybe you stamp on the guy's head, but the point is on a, in a, in the dojo, you just stand back up. There's, there's yeah. no groundwork. So when you hit the, you know, if you, you know, strike, 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 throw, then, you know, the, that's it. You, you, you through like, you know, maybe like judo or whatever. So, um, there's a ancient school in Japantown and I'm good friends with a sensei and he's really badass. Like he was really good fighter and he's, He's really, really tough. He's a really tough dude. He's got great stand-up, great throws, and about once a week, I get together with him and train with him, and today is the day this
1: week. Oh, that's awesome. So what um, training that style, what did that kind of teach you about, um, you know, on a practical level about fighting and then maybe at a deeper level about yourself because you didn't really say oh i want to be a fighter you just kind of fell into it and you know in that process you probably discovered some things about yourself
0: i did for sure i'll start with some things i discovered about myself um there's something called relativity and i don't mean the law of relativity like einstein because i'm not Mm. i'm not a science genius but i mean relativity like it's like for example if you chris were i'm just making this up if you were at a jiu-jitsu school and you were training four days a week And they were just like, you know, there were just like 10 black belt killers in that school that you were just rolling with like four days a week. You know, sometimes you got beat up. Sometimes you did good. Sometimes you just survived. But the point is like, you are rolling for a year straight with just a freaking, you know, a lineup of killer black belts. And then like, say you're like going, you're like traveling somewhere. You're like, oh, it's a jiu-jitsu school. I want to train. You know, the teacher's like, yeah, come by, you know, pay the math fee. "Eh, Don't even pay the math fee. Come enjoy yourself. And then there's like, there's a guy there who's like a pretty good black belt and maybe he doesn't have the best attitude and he wants to roll with you. And, you know, for a second, maybe your heart starts beating a little quickly or like, ah, oh, you know, this, this guy is like, he is pretty freaking good and he doesn't really have the best attitude. You, you know, you're trying to just like, you know, stay calm and get ready to roll with him. Like the fact that you for a year straight are rolling with like a lineup of killers, like you might just for a second, like wait a second, I'm sure this guy's tough and maybe he doesn't have the best Mm -hmm. attitude, but but I just spent a year like rolling with these animals. Like I'll be fine. So it's like relative to what you've been doing, this is actually not a big deal. And then you calmly deal with the situation and do what you have to do. However, Mm -hmm. if you were at a school for the last year where you were like, let's say a black belt, but everyone else there was blue belts and even though you're having a good time and getting a good workout, whatever, but then you have this situation with this guy and he's a high level black belt who wants to kick your ass. Maybe it's like, you you know, like relative to what you've been doing, you don't really have something to fall back on and, and compare it to, to make you feel better. So to answer your question, like I remember one experience I had in 1991, I fought in Holland against this guy who was very, very tough at the time, at the time in 1991, He was the world middleweight Kyokushin champ and he was the world middleweight thai boxing champ like he just oh wow and he was like a killer and like almost everyone he fought just ended up like unconscious on a stretcher in an ambulance i mean the guy was like i mean he was actually a nice guy but he was just like a brutal killer yeah i you know i fought him i actually lost but i lost the decision it was like fairly close i remember when i I when i came back to the united states i was like you know, whether it was in the dojo or just life, I was like, this is no big deal. I was like, I stood in a ring in front of this guy who's like an annihilator of people on TV in front of thousands of people. It was on like Eurosport, you know, that's like the ESPN in Europe or whatever. I was like, relative to what I experienced, like whatever. So to answer your first question, how did it grow me as a person? Like it made me, I don't want to say more confident or I guess it did, but more just like when I would like confront things, I was like, well, I've, i've dealt with worse so this isn't so bad so that kind of helped me a lot um i think the other question was how did it help me like physically that was the other question right
1: yeah i just said practically would you learn about combat and
0: things oh yeah i see yeah 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 i i yeah i did learn a lot um i think you know some martial artists are living in a bit of a dream world like they think what they do works but you know, God forbid they ever get attacked on the street by someone who's a good street fighter, they might find out pretty quickly what they think is not so. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm just saying like, listen, I've said this before in other interviews and I'll say it now. People do martial arts for many reasons. And I'm not saying what those reasons should be. Some people do it to make friends, get in shape, have like a family, be part of a community, be part of a culture, be healthier, you know, whatever. And that's fine. I'm not saying why people should or shouldn't do martial arts. But if people, if one of the things on the list of why someone does martial arts is for practical self-defense, then I guess the martial art the person does should actually work in practical self-defense. Um, and I think, like, most jiu-jitsu guys are probably in pretty good shape. I think it is a practical self-defense. Um, but I think there are some martial arts that are just living in this fantasy world that thinks it is a practical self-defense, and it's anything but. Um, and listen, I'll give an example. Like, I'm not talking about when I talk, I'm gonna mention Aikido, I'm nothing against Aikido. Actually, key Aikido, which is a branch of Aikido that I love, I have ultimate respect for. Most Aikido, which is from what's called the Aikikai branch of Aikido, again, I'm nothing against it. I'm not saying it's bad. Um people might join Aikido to get in shape or meet friends or just having a positive, healthy lifestyle. Um, and maybe there is some self-defense applications with some of the wrist locks or the throws, but I would say that 95% of Aikido black belts would just get their ass annihilated by any decent street fighter. Um, and if they think they're doing Aikido for self-defense, I think they're in for a serious surprise. Now I know there's, there's some police officers who do Aikido with finger locks and wrist locks and it's good. And I'm sure that, you know, some people might have Aikido teachers who really do know about practical self defense and, and they're good at it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm just saying there are many Aikido people who, you know, are living in a fantasy world that it actually works when it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So um what I kind of learned about practical self defense is like I kind of learned what is and isn't practical. And <laughs> I uh I'm not like I said, I'm not saying why people should train or not, but if you're interested in practical stuff, um I, I, right. I, I think I kind of It gave me a good context for what that was, Hmm.
1: and then um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you know, there's some of these guys who are like, you know, um, Sufis and like, but they train behind closed doors, and they don't really, you know, expose themselves to publicly broadcasted competitions and stuff. You know, it's it's kind of an interesting world. Uh, Joe Rogan talks a lot about that. There's a lot of nonsense and martial arts unfortunately
0: actually i was on that note i was reading a book recently a good book so actually it's kind of funny it's it's actually a really good book but it's a book about tai chi and uh again i have nothing against tai chi you know people want to do tai chi they get healthy longevity you know if if there's a connection with longevity i don't know but they say there is um you know health relaxation i think it's actually great i I would even do tai chi for like the relaxation and i think it's Mm -hmm. great um but I was reading a book and they were interviewing this guy, it was kind of interviewing him. And he was talking about like the self-defense aspect of Tai Chi. And again, I believe there's probably like that 1% of Tai Chi masters that really know how to fight, but you know, there probably are. Um, but I'm just saying like, in Tai Chi, they were asking this guy about the self-defense applications. And he was like, well, a lot of people think it's the push hands, the push hands, the pu- you know, you do a lot enough, what they call push hands in Tai Chi. It's good for self-defense. He said, actually the self-defense applications are really in the forms. Like you do the forms long enough. And I'm like, bullshit, you know, I don't <laughs> think so you do those forms for 20 years and you get a right hook to the temple. You're unconscious or, so, or, 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 or a, or a, or a a D one wrestler does a double leg and just blast you on your back. I don't care about your forms. So I'm just saying like, I'm thinking like, man, that's unfortunate that this guy thinks that. And he's saying that, um, yeah. but again, I am open to the fact that there may be some Tai Chi masters who exist, who really can fight. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not, I, I like that, in fact, I bet there are. Um, I'm just saying like when I'm reading about this guy and I kind of know his lineage and I kind of understand how he's doing Tai Chi, I'm like, no, it's not. You're, you're, you're not going to defend yourself with that. So, Hey, maybe I'm wrong. I'm just giving my opinion, but, um, that's just some uh, stuff that I've observed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you've, you've had this really incredible martial arts journey and I want to make sure too, we can touch on some of your healing work as well. Um, what got you into chiropractic? Chiropractic, and um, and what's uh, you know what's kept what's kept you in it? So I think yeah, no problem. So I think um,
0: I guess you would say like chiropractic. I, I, don't, I don't think chiropractic is actually where it maybe maybe may, maybe it is. I have to look it up. I'm inventing <laughs> it. Yeah, I'm you might, it. you might have invented chiropractic, but it could be a, I, I, maybe I'll start using that. I like that. Chiropractic. Yes, yeah, so I think I think it would be called like you know the person who does it is a chiropractor. And the person, and and the, the thing itself is called chiropractic, but whatever, no big deal. So on that note, what got me into chiropractic and what's kept me into it, it we'll, we'll, we'll put it like that for the moment. Um, so long story short, when I was a kid growing up in New York, I grew up in a very naturally oriented family, um, meaning we didn't really go to MDs. Like, we just didn't. Like, my mom was like, yeah, MDs are full of shit. Like, you know, so that's that's kind of how I grew up. I mean, obviously if someone needs like stitches, you better go to an MD, you know what I'm saying? They know how to fill you up, you know? Um, but besides that, I was not, I was not brought up to think of anything about MDs besides, you know, God forbid you have to go to an emergency room. There's really no reason to see one again. I'm not advising anyone on that. I'm just answering your question. That's how I grew up. Yeah. Um, so on that note, um, our chiropractor was kind of like our doctor. Like we just went to him to be healthy, you know. Mm. Now, it's interesting because when you think of chiropractic these days, 99% of chiropractors, everyone who comes to see them is there for neck and back pain. Like they come because their neck or their back or their shoulder or their knee hurts. But what's interesting, this is, this is I think you'll find this really cool. Yeah. Tell me, you can be honest with me, Chris, if you're like, Pete, that wasn't so interesting. But I'll, I think you'll find it interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So the first chiropractor, let me tell you his story, if you don't mind. So the first chiropractor's name was D.D. D. Palmer, and he was in Davenport, Iowa, in the late 1800s. And, of course, he wasn't a chiropractor because there was no chiropractic yet. He was a magnetic healer, so he worked with, like, the magnetism of the body. It's almost like like Reiki, kind of, but there was, yeah. you know, it wasn't called Reiki then. It was like he was working with like the magnetic aura of the body, whatever, and doing some kind of healing. And he was kind of like studying like spirituality and metaphysics and healing and, you know, uh, anatomy and whatever. And fast forwarding a little bit, he just gets this idea one day in his head. He's like, he's like, I think people are sick. I think people are sick because their bones are out of place. And when their bones are out of place it puts pressure on nerves. And when there's pressure on nerves, the nerves send the wrong signals to the organs. Hmm. So for example, if there's a bone out of place, not so out of place that it's like dislocated, but out of place enough that it puts pressure on the nerve to the stomach, the stomach gets the wrong signal because the nerve signals Hmm. interfered with. And now the stomach is gonna malfunction. The person gets ulcers and heartburn and stomach aches and acid reflux or whatever. So instead of going to a medical doctor to get like a pill to to kill the symptom, it doesn't doesn't fix the problem, it just kills the symptom. Let's put the bone back in place, open up the nerve flow to the stomach so the stomach gets the proper nerve flow. And when the stomach gets the proper nerve flow, that organ can work properly. And then the stomach works properly and the person who had ulcers doesn't have them anymore. They heal. Right. The person who had acid reflux doesn't have it the person who has constant stomach aches doesn't have it so that was his idea but it was just an idea he didn't he, he didn't prove it it was just in his head so there was a janitor there was a janitor working in the building where he rented space to do his magnetic healing and it was in Davenport Iowa and it was in 1895 and this janitor um was deaf. And I don't know exactly how they communicated. I don't know that part of the story. I don't know if the janitor read lips or maybe Dee Palmer wrote stuff. I, I don't know how they, I don't know how they, maybe they use like kind of rudimentary sign language. I, I don't know what was going on, but they became buddies. So D.D. Palmer's there. He has his like magnetic healing practice. He's friends with this janitor who's deaf. Mm-hmm. And he asked the janitor, however they communicate, he's like, hey, how how, how are you, how did you become deaf? Were you born like that? The guy's like, no. He goes, I actually was born able to hear, but about 20 years ago, I think that janitor was 40 then. So 20 years ago, he was 20. He said he, he bent down to pick something up very heavy, and he felt like a bone in his neck like snap or something or give out or something happened, and he just became totally deaf that moment. So D.D. Palmer's like, awesome, I've been thinking about this. Can I try to put that bone back in place in your neck? Mm. I think it actually – actually, oh, I said neck. Actually, it was, it was in the upper thoracics. It was T4. I don't, I don't know why I said neck, but it was T4. It was upper thoracics. He said, can I put that bone back and see if it affects your auditory nerve somehow? Hmm. And the guy was like, yeah. And he like laid him down. He popped it in place. And the guy got his hearing back, like on the spot. I think it took like one more. on the more. spot? On the spot. I think, he, I, I think the story, I think the way it went down is he got his hearing back like 90% in like one second. Like, the wow. nerve. And then like, I think he came back the next day and he did one more and he got 100%. It's funny when you look at the uh, when you look at the writings. It's like it's all documented. It's kind of funny because it's 1895, right? Yeah, you know they had like the horse and buggies back then, like on the cobblestones. So the way it was written, D.D. Palmer, when he recorded it, he goes, his name was Harvey Lillard, was the Harvey Lillard was the janitor. He goes, Harvey Lillard couldn't hear the racket of the horse-drawn carriage on the cobblestones, even from like the you know the sixth floor or whatever they were, and then I put the bone back in place and it opened up the nerve flow and he got his hearing back and he could hear the, he could hear the horses, you know,
1: going. Interesting.
0: So that's how chiropractic was born. It had nothing to do with neck and back pain. Now the next patient came in was, so that happened with a janitor. Yeah. The next patient who came in had a heart problem, like angina. Like he had like mm-hmm. heart pain, like chest pain or whatever it was, chest pain from the heart. mm mm-hmm. And he was coming for magnetic healing treatments. And I guess he believed in energy and D.D. Palmer's doing his magnetic healing on the guy's heart. And then D.D. Palmer's like, can I push this bone back in place at T2, which is the nerve that goes to your heart? Hmm. And he did. And then like his heart, the chest pain was gone like forever. Wow. So he's yeah, like, yeah. whoa. He's like, I discovered this thing, which just, you know, again, outside of like needing stitches or if someone has like a burst appendix, you know, they have to go to the emergency room for that. He's like, this will just fix anything because I'll just open up the nerve to anywhere. So that's Mm -hmm. how chiropractic was born. And from 1895 to 2020, the profession just flipped right over. It went from, you know, adjusting people for anything and everything to just like neck and back pain. Mm -hmm. Now, I was lucky enough that I was trained by one of the old school guys who was from like that lineage. So now... Eighty-five or so percent of my patients. If you go in my waiting room, which you could because you're near me, you go in my waiting room. Like, hey, what are you here to see, Doctor Pete for? Eighty-five percent of them will tell you they're here for their liver, gallbladder, stomach, pancreas, uterus, ovaries, immune system, uh, whatever. And then fifteen yeah. percent, you know, will say, oh, I came for my neck or my back or whatever. So, you know, let's say someone, let's say someone was like, I think. Chiropractic's bullshit. I think what Dr. Pete's talking about is bullshit. Okay, yeah. well, come to my office and interview people in my waiting room. I had a woman come to me not too long ago. I just posted a Facebook Live with her. She came to me. She had horrible gallbladder attacks. They told her she had to get her gallbladder out. She came to me to fix her gallbladder up. That was her chief complaint. We worked on her, opened the nerves to her gallbladder, and other things that I did with her body, you know, as far as healing no more gallbladder attacks, never got a gallbladder out. She has a gallbladder. She'll continue to have a gallbladder. Her gallbladder is totally healthy. So if someone's like, I think it's bullshit. Okay, well, think what you want. Now I just gave you one of a thousand examples. Right. People coming to me. who are supposed to get endometriosis surgery, which is not a fun thing on the cervix. They Mm -hmm. come to me for a month. I don't need that. I mean, again, like I'm just talking about actual things (sighs) that happen in my office or people who come in with horrible immune systems I, worked on them, I work on them for a month or two, and their immune system is totally strong. So, of course, mm-hmm. neck or back pain is easy for me, but it's not debatable. These are just facts. Now, let's say one more thing. Let's just say someone – and I've said this on in another interview, but I want to say it here. Let's just say someone said to me, or you, or someone listening – well, I still think it's BS. I think it's just the placebo effect because you know people are coming to you. You have a certain they interaction. They're
1: going to get it, yeah. Yeah,
0: they think they're going to get better. You kind of push on this bone. You tell them it's opening up this nerve, which it's really not, but they think it is. So the placebo effect is very strong. You know what my answer is? Could be. I don't know. I don't care. Now, Same let's with pharmaceuticals. Just say, yeah, let's <laughs> right, let's just say let's just say that 100% of what I do is non-placebo. Let's just say it really is about opening up nerve flow right. and proper brain signal, let's just say. Okay, so that's that's one option. Let's say everything I do is 100% placebo. Let's say chiropractic really in itself physically is total garbage, but everything I do is totally placebo. 100%, okay? Let's say it's 80-20 in either direction or 50-50. You know, it's like there is some physical, yeah. there's some physical stuff, but a lot of it's placebo, okay. Here's the bottom line, Chris. No one else could help that woman with her gallbladder, but I did. Because before she came to me, the doctors, wanted, the MDs wanted to remove her gallbladder. She went to acupuncture, didn't help her. She went to different chiropractors who don't know what I know, couldn't help her. She went to homeopaths and naturopaths and herbalists, couldn't help her. So she went to several natural and non-natural doctors. No one could help her gallbladder. She had gallbladder attacks all the time she was going to get her gallbladder removed. She came to me, her gallbladder is all better. So people could say what they want, but results are results. And I have about a th- thousands of other situations like that where people have had these pretty you know, major things, have been to other chiropractors, acupuncturists, homeopaths, naturopaths, medical doctors, totally not healing, not getting better. Nothing's working. They come to me for a month or so and they're all better. So is it is chiropractic in itself legit? Is it placebo? Is it I don't know. I don't care. But Chris, you know, God forbid someone you really cared about got sick, which I hope never happens, but God forbid it ever happened. And you're like, I don't really understand what Dr. Pete does, but he fixes people better than anyone else. You'll send them yeah. to me. Yeah. Because even if you're like, wait, is the placebo? Is chiropractic? But you know, you know when they spend some time with me, they're gonna be all better, most likely. So I'm just interested in results, and the results, you know, speak for themselves. It's not even yeah. debatable. There's not, it's nothing to debate. The results speak for themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think at the end of the day, we're all about the R. So as long as the the methods are are um, are safe, then I think that's what most people recognize. So most thinking people, and you don't have to convince me because I, I believe it. So I I know we got to wrap up soon. So I just have two final questions. One is for the athlete, um, you know cause I work with a lot of up and coming guys who are looking to make it, whether it's just to the collegiate level or professional level, or they're kind of new professionals looking to climb the, the, the ladder. What does opening up the nerve flow, um, the kind of work you do help them in their career? Two things. And, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, let's, Two, go ahead. Okay. Two things. Number one, um, I mean, my clients include BJ Penn, Jake Shields, Gilbert Melendez, Hickson Gracie, Krohn Gracie, several NHL superstars, several NFL superstars. I'm not even a sports doctor. They still come to me because I get, yeah. we get results in anywhere else I can go. Um, how does it help them? I mean, look at... Uh, uh, Dion Jordan is on the Raiders. I mean, he's one of the, you know, I think he was the third overall pick in the NFL draft when he was in the draft. He's a phenomenal player. He's in my office minimum once a week, sometimes twice a week because he wants to be totally balanced, proper brain signal, proper nerve flow, every cell in his body working at the highest level so he can perform on the field. Um, I, I had Justin Tuck, who was an NFL superstar who had stingers every, you know, singers twice a week he had these terrible singers from playing football I fixed up his neck never had a stinger again BJ Penn in 2004 was supposed to get neck surgery and retire in 2004 his neck was so bad he had been to chiropractic acupuncture whatever you can imagine the MDs were like look BJ here's your MRI you need neck surgery and you should retire we fixed him up and we fixed him up in six visits in 2004. And you know bj pence had his ups and downs but you've never heard about his neck again because i fixed nope. it they fixed um the list goes on and on and on Cron, every time crone gracie is up from la in the bay area i i'm one of his first texts hey dr pete can we meet up and he's like, yeah. like he's like pete no one else can work on my neck but you etc cetera, etc cetera. so <laughs> you know like um you know if someone's an athlete and they want to perform at the highest level they should not only, you know, have the proper nerve flow, but the technique I do, which we never got into, actually make sure the brain's sending out the proper signals, which is not a common thing in chiropractic, but I also have that aspect too, which pro athletes love.
1: Yeah. So it's really about being at your making sure your body's functioning at the optimal level, that misalignments or any of the such is not blocking what your body can naturally do. Well put. That's awesome. Now, uh, for folks who come to the Bay Area who live here, how can they find you? So
0: I wanted to say two things. If I I, I don't know who watches your shows, but I just want to say first, if anyone watching the show is a chiropractor, acupuncturist, naturopath, osteopath, MD, or any kind of doctor or healer, I have a school to teach you what I do. It's an amazing school. It's called the Zone School of Healing. The website is zone technique.com maybe Chris will put that in the bottom or whatever yeah, absolutely zone, zone it's all one word zone technique.com, zone technique.com. It, you can learn more about it on that website you can enroll on that website. my school is money back guarantee so if you don't like it it's free. Um, I have about 560 uh, chiropractors and other doctors and healers around the world in my school it is awesome will change your freaking life it'll change your practice so that's that Um, and uh, anyone who is you know in the Bay Area who wants me to actually work on them can simply go to my website sfgoldman.com SF like San Francisco Goldman like my last name SF dot com and you can book your appointment online and I'm happy to take care of you
1: there it is Dr. Pete laying it down okay so um, (laughs) So this is really cool, man. And I want to thank you for sharing your insight and energy and and time with us. Uh, It's really, really cool stuff. Thanks, man. Hey, Chris, I really appreciate it. Sincerely appreciate
0: it. And um, listen, who knows? Maybe someone will watch this and join Zone School and
1: it'll change their whole life. So we did a good deed right there. Exactly. Exactly. You never know. So, all right, man. Well, uh, we'll see you around and hopefully on the mat soon, okay? Thanks again.